Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, July 22nd, 2022. In this week's episode, we will be discussing the sentencing hearing for Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz as jurors consider the possibility of the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. We will also break down two cases centered around the use of deadly force by civilians, one involving a bodega worker who stabbed a man who attacked him behind the counter, and another that saw the tragic death of a young girl after a man fired a weapon at a fleeing robber. Both men were ultimately not charged in the killings, and we're going to talk about if justice was served. Wrapping up, we'll dive into the murder trial facing a father and son for the death of Kristen Smart, a case over 25 years in the making. And today we are very excited and happy to be joined by Joshua Schiffer, a former public defender and current criminal defense lawyer with vast experience trying cases from municipal courts all the way up and through this all stages of the federal system. Josh, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, we've been looking forward to it. Um, before we could jump right into these things, tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice today. Yeah, so um, I was, we don't tell anybody this, secretly born in Massachusetts to two <laughs> PhD academics. But as a young child, I ended up in Atlanta. My dad was the senior scientist for a big corporation. My mom was a professor. So I was raised uh, in the bedroom communities outside of Atlanta during a kind of exciting time. The 80s and 90s, Atlanta was growing very quickly was becoming much more influential nationally and, and really coming to its own as a city. Uh, so therefore, when I got to college, I was like, I need to run away. And I was going to go join the international business and government community and go study international relations at a little university called Clark in Worcester, Massachusetts, which I adored. But then uh, when I finished, it turns out that there's not a lot of delivery food when you're doing uh, you know, non-governmental organization and uh, work uh, developing less developed countries and doing academic stuff. So I ended up like a lot of people going to law school, looking for what the next step was. Uh, and after bouncing around a little bit in school, I really fell into a clerkship right when I got out. Uh, I didn't enjoy the actual working conditions as much as being exposed to criminal law. And that led me to a position as a public defender in Fulton County, which is the main county where Atlanta is located for several years. Uh, then in 2007, I attended and graduated the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College uh, at his ranch. Uh, and that's a three week intense program where wow. at the end of it, I really discovered a lot about me and my frustrations in practice specifically doing public defense work and, and how trapped that that made me feel. And Jerry and the rest of the crew uh, said, Josh, you got to go do your own thing and find your own justice. So I started a solo practice doing straight criminal. Uh, I had a very supportive family. Uh, a couple years after that, I partnered with actually one of my former prosecutors um, that we butted heads so much. The judge, uh, Honorable Henry Newkirk, used to call us you two knuckleheads because we <laughs> fight about stuff that in retrospect, a lot of lawyers don't fight about. Homeless guys going uh, to jail for an extra day or 10 hours of community <laughs> service, you know, and we would 
fight, you know, like young lawyers do where you grab that issue and you really just tear into it because you're saving the world. Um, right. Jerry's I, lessons. I remember, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you, but you're reminding me of the epic battles I used to get into when I was a first year prosecutor over uh, a people with driving with a suspended license. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's hilarious you say that. Judge Newkirk, who was a former police officer, a high profile prosecutor, and now a very well respected Superior Court judge, his pet charge was suspended license. And he was the one judge that would really hammer you. And we were always like, why, Judge? He said, Josh, that's one of the really basic rules of society that ties us all together. Hmm. And if you're going to chronically ignore and abuse that, that's a big sign to me as a judge that you're 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 you need corrective action. And he did not fool around with suspended license, suspended license and anything firearms related because we were in, in state court, uh, right. not superior court. And and yeah. You love tying into that with the emotion and passion that only a young practitioner can. Uh, it feels good. So, uh, and I, I graduated from the program, started a practice. Doug and I uh, combined it in an all criminal practice around 2010. And then we started accepting and keeping the civil cases that we generated. Uh, Doug's a family man and has some other interests. So he manages our civil practice, which has a lot of co-counseling work with lawyers across the nation. And while we do some car wrecks and minor stuff, we kind of concentrate on more complex uh, injury issues, first party frauds and financial crimes, uh, fires, natural disasters, train wrecks, things of that nature. And then I still get to do my core practice, which I love base criminal work with individuals. Uh, I love the individual connection with clients, uh, both my grandfathers, one of them was a psychologist and the other was a minister. And my brother's a psychologist. So we, we really have the family tradition of working with people because yeah. that's where you make a difference. And as I teach all my students, this is one of those rare jobs where you have the opportunity to make a permanent, intimate, meaningful and profound difference in someone's life. And not many jobs ever allow you to do that. Uh, very and it's cool. what drives a lot of lawyers is that is that interface. Yeah, very cool. Well, I, I, I loved hearing that this, your story. I know you're on uh, court TV quite a bit uh, doing legal commentary there. So I, I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts on the cases that we're going to consider today. So let's jump right in. Uh, first out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the sentencing continues for Nicholas Cruz, now 23 years old, in the wake of the 2018 Parkland, Florida shooting that left 17 dead and additional 17 injured. Cruz pled guilty to all charges in October of 2021 and was expected to be sentenced in January of 2022, but COVID delays pushed the sentencing hearing to July 18th of this year. The prosecution has entered a number of disturbing videos and audio, and we're talking about the penalty phase of the trial. So it's a penalty trial only, and we're gonna get into that. Um, as well as uh, the prosecution tes presented testimony from victims who were injured in the shooting. Cruz has been seen burying his head and plugging his ears in court during video and audio of the shooting being played in court. And Cruz's defense has objected to video shown, arguing that the emotional response it could elicit from jurors outweighed the evidentiary value. 
The jury will decide whether Cruz will face the death penalty for the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history or if he will spend the rest of his life in prison. Okay, Josh, first question right off the bat. The defense took a very unique and I'm saying perhaps risky strategy in this case by pleading guilty. What, what do you think their thinking was? What's the strategy here? Well, whenever you've got a death penalty case, and while I don't actively practice any death penalty law, I do consult with a number of lawyers that do. Uh, I have for a long time been involved as a, as a teacher and a consultant with lawyers from coast to coast. Um, death penalty has a different analysis than other cases. You're not necessarily going for the win. Nobody's expecting a dismissal. The facts are almost always overwhelming as to the tragedy of whatever the death is. And, and it is here. Uh, as a colleague of mine mentioned yesterday, there's not a better set of facts justifying the application of the ultimate punishment than so many dead people in such an egregious and hateful and unpredictable uh, way. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that everybody says, well, we, we've got really stiff punishments and it's crimes like this that justify why we fight about something as visceral and important as the death penalty. Um, so by pleading guilty, the analysis isn't how are we going to get this kid uh, 20 years instead of life? Or, no. How do we keep the needle out? Right. And any advantage you can get thinking out of the box to prevent that needle from being applied is worth pursuing. And that's clearly what their justification was in saving the state the expense and sending the message of culpability, acknowledgement, and, and taking credit for the actions uh, Mr. Cruz took than, than pleading guilty on the front end. And he did yeah. it very quickly. I'm sure that he didn't hide his intentions at all because this really isn't a case about murder. It's a case about the death penalty. Right, right. I completely understand that strategy, and that's what I thought initially too is that they're they're trying to avoid a lot of the horrendous kind of evidence that might pre be presented at the guilt phase if there was a guilt phase in the trial um, because they would have to prove all of these murders and everything that he did and how horrific everything was but they're doing that anyways the prosecution yeah. is going to be doing putting this penalty phase on for about four months i think is their estimate and they're, they're not sparing any evidence. They're walking through the audio. They're walking through the video. They're having all the witnesses testify to. So to some extent, my, my question to you is, has it, has it some in some respect backfired on the defense in that they didn't avoid all of that? And now they're sitting next to an already convicted uh, guilty person and they didn't have the opportunity to, to kind of preserve any issues on appeal in the guilt phase. Yeah, well, let's push back on that analysis a little bit because – Please. The guilty plea, it, it wasn't for the state as much as it was for the system. And it wasn't to appease a prosecutor's office, which uh, by their very nature are highly political. There was no doubt anybody down there that the DA's office wasn't going to pursue the death penalty. This is why they are DA's. This was an easy choice for them to say, no, we're, we're going for the death penalty. The, right. the, the communication, the message from Mr. Cruz and his team is to the court and from a more existential view, society at large. The right. question of how do we apply and whether we do apply the death penalty isn't one for a case or a judge or a state. It is a national discussion. 
that actually fits within an international framework. Um, lots of times you'll see more advanced and progressive countries do not apply the death penalty for a variety of different cultural reasons. And the ones that do tend to be the ones we don't want to align with. We're talking North Korea, China, Russia, the Middle East. These aren't the countries we aspire to be more like in our traditional Western paradigm. So the defense and the message by pleading guilty goes more into that overall conversation with the hope that by the end of this case, in 20, 30, 40 years, that things will have changed and that his action, Mr. Cruz's actions now will benefit him later because he did take acknowledgement and his, and I hesitate to use this, this phrase, gift to the victim's family is only having to go through a penalty phase and not both a trial and a penalty phase. There's no question that the state is going to thoroughly create a record that is detailed. They're going to yeah. cover everything ad nauseum. That's why they're so repetitious with these videos and the cumulative evidence, because they're establishing a record that the state's going to rely on for the next 20, 30, 50 years in, uh, in confirming and maintaining the death penalty's applicability in state actions. So there's this bigger discussion that that decision fit into in kind of a minor way. Yeah, yeah. No, you make a very good point. And I, I am positive that in closing arguments uh, at this trial, the defense is going to make that point eminently clear to the oh. jurors that, yeah. hey, listen, you're only sitting here because he accepted responsibility on this and didn't put all of you and all of these people in the gallery through all of that to have to hear all of that. We're here just to decide, you know, the punishment against that person. Yeah. You're spot on. And, and that's the defense attorney mindset of you're definitely going to concentrate on those good facts. And again, the aggravating factors that the state is required to carry in order to achieve application of the death penalty, his Mr. Cruz's acknowledgement and acceptance, they they're part of that analysis. This isn't someone who's saying I didn't do any. Of it. No, 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 no. That's a different prosecutorial perspective. This is an individual who has fully, unequivocally, unambiguously accepted responsibility for horrible crimes and is now in a position of asking for some modicum of compassion and some relief from the ultimate punishment. And he's doing everything possible to earn that that treatment rather than the death penalty. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned something that I want to ask you about. Um, it, you talked about factors in aggravation. The defense has lodged multiple objections based on the idea that a lot of this evidence is not relevant. Not that it's not relevant to what took place that day, but it's not relevant to factors in aggravation, which is what this trial is, is confined to. Uh, for instance, um, earlier this week, there was a video played of Cruz nonchalantly ordering an icy within minutes of killing 17 people. And I watched that video and it is chilling. But the defense's argument here, and let's let's get you know really specific about this, their argument is maybe that has to do with that day and maybe that has to do with where he went after these murders, but it has nothing to do with factors in aggravation. So could you explain for listeners a little bit what, first of all, what that means, factors of aggravation, mitigation, and 
is do you think the the defense attorneys for Cruz might be creating some appealable issues here with their objections? Well, let me hit the first easy one. Um, the defense has an obligation to object to virtually every single thing that happens in this penalty phase, regardless of whether they're wholeheartedly behind it or whether it's kind of a layup because they're establishing a record. And if right. you don't make the objections, you may be deemed to have waived objections and defenses. So they're preserving a record that they can then litigate ad nauseum uh, forever and ever. So getting back to kind of more of the meat of the issue, the state in, is, is requesting the death penalty and they carry a burden, just like when someone is being prosecuted, the state has to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The state has to carry this these threshold factors and facts above and beyond what's required by state law for the jury to allow and grant the state the ability to sentence him to death. So there are factors that are specifically delineated in the code. Uh, every state has different ways of setting up their death penalty practice. And by satisfying these specific factors, that then opens the door to applying the death penalty. If they don't satisfy those factors, they're prohibited from applying the death penalty because they haven't reached that appropriate burden and satisfied it. So it's important that the state be given broad latitude to bring in all the evidence that they can argue and that the court agrees is relevant to those aggravating factors. The defense makes a great point that some of these pieces of evidence don't directly link to a factor in a clear delineated manner. And therefore, it shouldn't be included because they're too uh, they're, they're too exploitative. Uh, and, and I get that because the video at Subway, that's chilling. And even more chilling is knowing that the guy he's next to's brother was one of the victims in the shooting. And Mr. Cruz is as cool as a cucumber, just like any other teenager. He's wearing his ROTC uniform, looking all impressive. And it's just like any other day. I feel that the defense might be missing an opportunity to, to illustrate exactly how broken this young man's mind might have been, because it really takes uh, a, a challenging mindset to participate in something that violent and then just kind of shake it off and go get a drink and a sandwich. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I think that it turns into every fact has two sides. There's the side that flows against you. And then if you search hard enough, there's a part of it that's going to benefit you. And in this case, his disassociative behavior where he is acting like nothing happened, that goes to his mindset more than anything else because it's, it's physical. You can see him being this cool, regular guy after committing what is one of the most heinous crimes in American history. Yeah, really interesting thoughts on that. Um, well, it's a it's a horrific case. It's it's an incredible tragedy, but from a legal perspective, it really is fascinating to watch this all unfold, and we'll continue uh, to keep an eye on it. Let's turn now to two cases which explore the concept of self defense. First, out of Manhattan. After widespread public outrage, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg dropped the charge murder charges. Pardon me. Uh, facing Jose Alba, 61 years old. Alba, a bodega clerk, stabbed ex-convict Austin Simon, 35 years old, after Simon attacked Alba behind the counter of a Hamilton Heights bodega on July 1st. 
The Bodega employee was initially charged with second-degree murder and held at Rikers Island on a $250,000 bond. However, there was immediate public outrage after surveillance video from inside the Bodega seemed to show that Alba was clearly attacked first and only turned on Simon in an act of self-defense. Following an investigation, and I'm going to put that in quotes, prosecutors reached the conclusion that they could not prove that Alba was not justified in his use of deadly physical force. All right, Josh, so keep that case in mind. I know you've been following that, and we're going to compare that to a case out of Texas. This is out of Harris County. The death occurred the evening of February 14th when Tony Earls and his wife were robbed at gunpoint while making a deposit at a drive through ATM. The couple initially complied with the assailant's request, then Earls exited his vehicle and fired at the fleeing suspect. Earls claimed he heard gunshots, which prompted him to shoot the robber. In the process of shooting the robber, Earls struck a truck driving by, tragically killing nine-year-old Arlene Alvarez, who was in the backseat. The family was reportedly driving to a restaurant for Valentine's Day dinner when the girl was killed. The robbery suspect is still at large and will face felony murder, and that's another thing I want to get into, charges in the killing. There's a $30,000 reward for information that leads to his capture. A Harris County grand jury declined to indict Tony Earls in the gir- Tony Earls, pardon me, in the girl's death. All right. First off, Josh, help us to understand from a legal perspective what is self-defense, right? From a lawyer, how would a lawyer talk about self-defense? Because there seems to be a lot of confusion in the public about what it really means. Yeah. So it, it brings up my arguably one of my favorite criminal law quotes of all time. And there's three defenses at law. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. And he needed to kill him. And those are really the three defenses. You can tear them up and, and pick them apart a million different ways. But those are really the three things that exculpate you from a, a criminal act. Uh, and he needed killing is another way of saying self-defense or justification, something that has become far more salient and important to society at large over the last decade, I'm going to say, but especially over the last couple of years, as America's perspective on state agents and state law enforcement and how our process works is really changing. We've also had a focus on self-preservation, Second Amendment rights, uh, the perspective of America and how we deal with our government is different than it was uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So in Georgia and the vast majority of other states, you are allowed to use, you've basically been given permission to use deadly force to protect your own health and safety and to some extent property. And this is going to be different from state to state. Georgia just changed some of its self-defense and most importantly, uh, the the civilian arrest uh, in regards to the Arbery case, because Georgia being originally a penal colony, we have pretty interesting laws when it comes to what you can do as an individual. And that includes shooting at people. We now have also had the development of the Stand Your Ground, very popular in parts of the nation, that that actually supports that more and gives more protection for use of deadly force in response to some sort of aggressive act. And that has encouraged more people to stand their ground and defend themselves when they perceive 
that they are under a threat and that perception of under threat and how you respond to that threat proportionality of response really becomes an important part of the analysis. You are not allowed to blow someone away with a hand cannon because of a gentle push. Now a gentle push combined with maybe some verbal statements that have the indicia of reliability to give you fit. Now we're talking about a different story. And the case-by-case analysis really becomes important. There was the Florida case of the retired police officer and the popcorn spill. Right. And a lot of people were surprised at how that one resolved. Because juries and the way our jury system is set up gives a minority on the jury huge power to disrupt what the majority is moving towards. If a jury is majority moving towards a conviction on all charges or on top charges, that minority jury of two, three, four, five people very successfully can split the baby, make some sausage and, and come down at a lower conviction than what the state's requesting. And self-defense is a very powerful way to change the way a jury perceives criminal acts. There's a lot of role reversal in it. A good defense attorney is going to take your jury and put them inside the head of the defendant during whatever the act was and try to make those jurors emotionally connect with the feelings the defendant was going through at the moment. And those feelings aren't necessarily your feelings. They're the feelings of this person. And it's whether they're reasonable or not. I'm threatened by different things than other people. And other people are threatened by things differently than me. What matters for the analysis in a criminal context is what that person was feeling, whether they, it was a reasonable feeling at the time they're going through whatever the event is. And that's why these cases are great for the defense, because the state so often thinks uh, myopically as a universal victim who is a Caucasian middle class you know, politically center right. And they have this magical person called Mr. and Mrs. Reasonable. And that's not necessarily what happened in, in this particular case when you're analyzing. Yeah, no, that was an excellent way of explaining it. And it really it really comes down to that reasonableness standard, which is why a lot of jurors are able to place themselves in that person's position because they think of themselves as a reasonable person. And they go, how would I act if I were in that person's position? And you're right. It does oftentimes play into the defense's hands because people placing themselves in these situations, they know, well, I don't want to end up dead. Uh, I wouldn't like being you know, attacked in the way that that person was. And I would want to feel that I could protect myself. But let's let's get back to um, these two cases we were talking about, because I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on these. It, with the with the case out of New York, were you surprised by the decision by Alvin Bragg by first to charge him and then within days to change his mind? I think that the initial charging was appropriate with the understanding that it would be rapidly investigated and decisions would get made. There's an obligation to do a thorough investigation into all facts. And we don't have everything that got set on the scene. It's what investigations are for. There's facts out there. And and bluntly, there there was a violent act. It's not the first time the victim or alleged uh, alleged victim 
ends up getting arrested. That's why we have due process. And due process worked in this because what happened? The case got dismissed. Unfortunately, it was only after they basically tortured this man who had been viciously robbed and attacked and all this. And it's terrible optics. But there's a lot of other stakeholders besides the two defendants, law enforcement and the public. There are property owners. There are neighborhoods. And those people may have had perspectives we're unaware of. The good news is that the investigation did result in in the right decision of dismissing. I also think it should have happened a lot faster. I think that the police made a lot of mistakes in how they approached this from the beginning. uh, And there might have been justified a much more intense review before you're going to place any victim of a violent crime under arrest. You know, we're talking about this was not a slap fight. The video is is dramatic. This was really violent stuff. Uh, And I'm pleased that he has been released. I don't think that there's a civil rights case uh, against the city because due process did work. It's just gross to see how the system actually works at times. Alvin Bragg is one of these prosecutors across the country that's come under some heat because of kind of this progressive sort of approach to uh, prosecution that he's taken. And, uh, you know, crime is rising in New York. Do you think that this was a a bit of a political decision on his part, either the initial charging or the, the release? Uh, You know, I think when made aware of it, he immediately decided I need to make it's a political issue. So I'm going to have to deal with it. And he's a pretty proactive. If there's a message he can send, he's one of the prosecutors that likes to send it. Uh, And he might have had some posturing in there for the uh, crime victims universe, which is a a terribly complicated universe. There, There are people that are very concerned about the rights of people while they are committing a crime. And logically, that makes sense. You never give up your rights until you've gone through due process and had them taken away. So it's important that people committing crimes are afforded their rights. Uh, But this did look to be a little overreaching. I think that it was probably some pandering. uh, And luckily, he made the right decision eventually. And we'll see how he deals with it. It's all in the recovery and how he moves on rather than the error that his office clearly made in holding this guy for too long. Yeah. Well, progressive uh, prosecuting hot topic for the next decade, because now we've already had these ones step up. We have a track record of what their results are. And those results aren't what was promised. And there's this backlash that's going to be fierce. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing it here in Los Angeles, for sure. Our, our uh, current DA is is under a recall right now that may happen any day now. Um, let's turn to the to the Texas case, um, because there's another legal concept here that I'm hoping you can help listeners understand. And it's the idea of the felony murder rule. Could you talk about, first of all, what that is and then how it applies to the circumstances of this case? Felony murder is one of my favorite topics because it's so well-intentioned but the results that flow from it are awful. When you hear of people with some truly ridiculous sentences, mandatory minimums, just unduly harsh treatment, if you you get into the nuts and bolts, you'll find felony murder in there somewhere. And it's an extension of our conspiracy uh, concepts where the one bad person who actually did the bad act isn't the only one responsible 
other people who were involved are responsible and contributed to that bad act. In Georgia, we have party to a crime. That's our charge for it. Lots of states, it's called conspiracy. And they almost always end up in a felony murder rule that basically stands for the idea that if a felony is being committed and a death occurs, not the intent of the felony, not of the intent of the actors, but a death occurs, and there's a sufficient nexus or connection with the other criminal act, then everybody involved is responsible for murder under the felony murder rule. Felony murder is almost always a death penalty eligible charge. And you hear how it is properly applied, but you hear a lot of terrible applications where people far removed from whatever the central felony is are still legally culpable, responsible, and convictable on the felony murder charge, despite their distance from the bad acts. And what I mean by that is the guy that was just in the car and the car pulled over and he didn't know anything, man, this guy just getting a ride. A couple buddies said, get a ride. And then the guys get out of the car and then go commit a horrible crime where a death flows. That guy sitting in the car is going to be considered by the state as culpable for the death as the people actually committing the crime. And therefore, they could be sentenced all the way up to the maximums. And that provides a lot of leverage in negotiation for the state by disproportionately threatening people with outrageous penalties, no matter how minimal their behavior was. Uh, and that's how people get flipped and how people get threatened. And it's the inherent unfairness of our system, because just because you decided to get a ride with somebody, you're now responsible for a murder. Well, you'll give them any evidence you want. It, uh, you know, what, what kind of cooperation do, are you requesting, state? I'll tell you anything in order to not be booked up and prosecuted for murder. Right. Uh, and there's loads of results, real life case results where severe injustices have taken place because of the threats and manipulation attached to the felony murder rule, which then comes down to this case in Texas where the well-intentioned shooter discharged his firearm with while targeting the, the bad guy. And due to his own facts, circumstances and negligence, that bullet hit and killed a child. And that's horrible. Nobody intended it, but the system demands someone be responsible. Right. And in the way felony murder is written, he could be exposed to the ultimate punishments. Right. And, and you did a remarkable job of explaining all of that and explaining kind of how on the fringes, of course, of anything, the, the, the outliers, there's going to be problems. I, I agree with you that it, sometimes prosecutorial officers are way too heavy handed in applying it, you know, to the getaway driver who had no idea the guys going inside the liquor store were even armed. But it, do you think it was it is applied? And, and again, this guy's still a fugitive. So if they find him and they do charge him with murder, do you think it is applied fairly here? I think it is. And I'll tell you why. And you tell me what you think. But because the we as a society say, listen, if you go and commit an armed robbery, that is a situation that is inviting such dangerousness and such potential for violence that perhaps your gun goes off, the, the person who's committing the robbery, 
or perhaps the liquor store gunner, uh, owner's gun go off and some innocent bystander, almost identical to the facts and circumstances we see in this case, gets killed, that that person who, who started the whole thing should be held responsible. I do think it is applied properly here. What, what do you say? I, I tend to agree that this would be appropriate subject to a thorough case analysis. Um, I see a lot of different ways that the original crime, the armed robbery, uh, definitely it's inherently violent. It is an awful crime. There's betrayal. There's everything that makes a crime a crime. But you can still establish that crime on a spectrum of egregiousness. Um, was a firearm used or not? Uh, what kind of planning? What kind of mental health mitigation right. of you? There's a lot of stuff that needs to be included in the totality of the circumstances by arguably an elected prosecutor or their assigns to decide and use their discretion whether they should bring the felony murder charge. I do think that it would fit here because of the foreseeability. If you're robbing people in Texas, don't say that you uh, are, that there's not going to be any guns involved. Like, <laughs> sorry, man. That's that's like uh, going up to a pawn shop and trying to rob it. They're, they're armed in there. It's like yeah. robbing a bank. They're armed in there. You can't say no one's going to have gunplay. And therefore, that person should be held responsible for the foreseeable injuries that a gunfight would bring about. And, and it justifies a, a severe punishment, even though the thief did not intend for there to be gunplay. And it seems disproportionate and awful. And there does need to be an assessment by a prosecutor on the ground, but it fits better in this case than in so many other places that we've seen. It. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Finally, after 25 long years, trial begins for father and son charged in the 1996 murder of college student Kristen Smart in Monterey, California. Paul Flores faces first-degree murder charges while his father, Ruben Flores, is charged as an accessory to the murder. Both men are being tried at the same time, but with different juries. The trial was moved from San Luis Obispo Superior Court. Um, the judge having ruled that Paul and Ruben Flores would not likely receive a fair trial in San Luis Obispo. Kristen Smart's disappearance after a college party in 1996 rocked the local community. Her body was never found, but she was declared dead in 2002. Nearly 25 years after Smart's death, Paul and Ruben were arrested in 2021. Prosecutors allege Paul Flores killed Smart in his dorm room before Ruben Flores helped him hide the body. A couple of revelations were disclosed uh, during opening, opening statements pardon me, by the prosecution earlier this week. First, prosecutors claimed four separate cadaver dogs alerted to the smell of human remains while searching Paul's dorm room and that disturbed soil found under Ruben Flores' porch also tested positive for the signs of blood. Okay, Josh, first of all, let's talk about change of venue yeah. because this is something I don't think it's touched on a lot. Tell us how rare that is and what, why was it applied in this case? It's not common, but it does happen, especially the higher the profile, the more likely it's going to happen. There are some cases of such well-established uh, repute that it is impossible that, to, to get an independent and fair jury and that no one's even going to try. Uh, so it is really important in order to preserve the integrity of our system. Uh, that you get a jury that at least appears 
independent uh, of prior influence. Uh, so it is necessary. I think that the state fights it too much. I think the state should just give up uh, many times a change of venues, almost a, a, a request of last resort. Um, it really it's it's showing your cards as the defense of, hey, we're we're already going to get cooked and lose here. So let's try to right. find some other place. Uh, there's the assets uh, of the community that need to be respected, though, as well. Uh, our prosecutors have to be good stewards of the assets that we entrust them with in making prosecutorial choices. And that's really what this case is about, is how the district attorney's office acts as a political animal and the different stakeholders pulling on them in the smart case. I, I know you remember it clearly like I, this was a big deal when this oh, happened. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. was where a lot of legal media, man, they latched onto this and it was a beautiful young woman that was the girl next door, the tragedy and the fear and the randomness just seemed so out of nowhere. It looked like they had some great suspects and the justice was going to be done, but they didn't have enough to really bring the case. And that's also where some of the problems start with the investigation and how it was done properly or how it was not done properly and how that affects our justice system from, from the more existential perspective. Because what do we have here? We have 25 years of a family suffering a horrific loss that they have carried the flame and God bless them. Every parent's worst nightmare. Man, I got a little girl. That's, that's a heart stopper right there. At the same time, lots of other crimes are out there. Lots of other deserving victims don't have people standing up or paying attention due to one reason or another. It's easy to fall into some demographic cheap shots about it's only because it's this kind of person, not that kind of person. But the facts remain, lots of valid cases do not get the attention from law enforcement that we, we would like. And the state has now decided to spend an enormous amount of money, time, effort, attention prosecuting two gentlemen that for 25 years have not been accused of any additional awful murders, where there's not a body, where there are substantial challenges with evidence and the lack of it, and that they're presenting a, let's just face it, the, the, this evidence, it, it's all circumstantial. It's yeah. strong circumstantial evidence, but they don't really have that much but they're going to spend all this time and money and then to do the oddness of two juries in yeah. the same truck. I've never even heard of that. We've run two juries at the same time where you go from one side to the other, but they're separate and distinct case at the same time. I don't even get how that happens. Yeah. And, and I think that the political posturing uh, from the, which comes from the demands of the public wanting justice, that's what's driving this case. Uh, sadly, I think the two guys probably, Stand a good chance of getting convicted. Uh, when you get to the funky science and the emotions of a case like this, jurors are more afraid of a wrongful acquittal than a wrongful conviction. And they want to satisfy that lust for justice that the prosecution is doing a good job of presenting. Um, the, the, the cadaver dog stuff, man, I can't even tell you how suspect some of the evidence promoted by the state can be for years and years, hair follicles. That turns out hair follicles, there's problems with that. DNA turns out eh, there's a couple more problems. 
blood alcohol content for DUIs. You don't even want to think about how challenged that science is. And the manufacturers and the machines that test your blood alcohol content, they won't tell anybody how they work. So they can't even be tested for accurate. Like there's problems with this evidence and the state's still going to go through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. It, let's I want to go back to something that you, you touched on a bit. The, the idea of two juries here. I, I have I've done one of these before. And, I, and let's talk a little bit about why they might do that. But in the case that I had, it was because I, I actually had three defendants this was when I was a prosecutor and one of the defendants had actually confessed to police and implicated the other two. And the problem was, if I put that evidence on, I could put it on against him because it's against his interest and therefore survives hearsay. But I couldn't put it on against the other two because they wouldn't have the ability to cross-examine him. So I, for that short period of time, we had two juries. And at the jury that was only listening for the third defendant, the one who had confessed, uh, they remained in court while the other jury left just to hear that small piece of evidence. And then we brought everybody back in. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Um, do you think, though, that that's like you, you, you I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you believe some of this is performative. Do you think that's what's happening here or or are they just trying to you know get this all done at the same trial? I, I think there's a little bit of, of all of that. The DA needs to close the file and move past this. And at some point, there's just a need to close business and move on to, uh, on to other cases. Other victims in other cases deserve uh, and require their attention. So there's definitely that political posturing. I definitely respect the Crawford confrontation issues, which is, is what you're referring to. We've struggled with that here in Georgia, figuring out how to handle the Sixth Amendment confrontation. And what we're talking about there is your Sixth Amendment right as a citizen, you get to confront the people accusing you. Uh, That is written in the original documents. There has not been a lot of arguing about meaning and intent. It's pretty clear. You get to confront the person accusing you. Well, if the person accusing you is also and, you know, wrapped up in your criminal issue, you've got to balance that person's rights with your rights. And anytime you've got that balancing test, there are winners and losers and decisions have to get made. And that's hard. I appreciate the court trying to thread that needle, but I also hold the state to the highest standard of the Constitution is not supposed to make it easy. Constitution has rules. Whether they're hard, it doesn't matter. Lots of people are not in prison because of technical issues, because of unique challenges. That's because the ethic of our country is to not steal your freedom unless the state can do it properly. And the state in these cases is struggling to do it properly. There are solutions, and maybe that solution is prosecute one of them more than the other. Maybe part of it is dropping one case so that they can pursue a different case. Those terrible decisions, which are unjust to the people involved, but they need to get made. And that's why we elect prosecutors and prosecutors have to decide what the highest priorities are, especially when it comes to the costs being dismissal or weakness in another criminal case. Right. All right, Josh, I'm going to give you the last word on this. You kind of touched on it already, but we're talking about it's a cold case. 
25 years old. It's a no-body case. They, they, there's no autopsy. They have no idea actually how this young girl was murdered. It's a completely circumstantial case. What are the chances here? Do you think the defense or the prosecution has really got an uphill battle or do you think they're going to be able to bring this home? Uh, I, the prosecution certainly has an uphill battle. They've embraced their uphill battle. They're going to lean into their uphill battle and try to be the David versus the Goliath of individual rights under the Constitution, which is kind of cool. Uh, you know, uh, academically, I think it's really interesting. The state is having an aspirational prosecution rather than a sure thing, which is what they love to to generally do, because really, most of the time, they've got way better proof. Um, They don't have it in this case. The character issues, the pretrial rulings, that's going to determine the state's ability to uh, prevail. The defense has their case. It's pretty straightforward. The state doesn't have enough evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the defense can cut that up and slice it up a million ways. The state's response to that, very emotional, very much going to be on, uh, we need and deserve answers. It really looks like these two. Here's a lot of reasons why it really clearly is these two. But beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest standard. And it's it's created that way on, on purpose. Yeah. So there's a lot of different winners and losers in this case, no matter what happens. Uh, and and it'll be interesting to see how it gets, you know, kind of kind of consumed by the public. There could be a real backlash against the the state on this. Um, but oh, interesting. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I have a little prediction that I'd like to put out there that 25 years is a long time for two people to keep their mouth shut. And I'm guessing after a few drinks or what have you, somebody said something to someone and that person finally came forward after 25 years. I'm just putting that out there that I think we're going to hear from some kind of witness like that that might just be enough for that, you know, that final little bit to, to bring down reasonable doubt for these jurors. But we will see. That's a, that's a good bet. And I tell you, the case it reminds me of is the, is the Ramsey case where there was a lot of silence because of the relations eventually it comes out and i won't be surprised if the state has that person yeah we'll see we'll see we'll be paying close attention josh thank you so much for coming on this week where can people find out more about you uh you know i'm pretty easy to find if you just google me i'm josh schiffer i'm really there's a couple others there's a doctor but i'm josh schiffer spelled just like the model claudia schiffer that i look (laughs) nothing like we're located in atlanta georgia but we practice kind of all around the nation i know a lawyer in your jurisdiction through my work with the Trial Lawyers College and other professional groups uh, where I teach and consult. Our other office is in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is how a lot of people know us from the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, We were on the front end of busting open Mr. Epstein's trust and doing the probate, uh, which is a story for another day. But I love talking with people and I I love the law. Um, I really appreciate your invite here, man. This was really fun. Oh, fantastic. We're so glad you can make it. Uh, and I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.